I would like for us, I would like to read this verse to you from <laughs> Psalm 79 as part of our prayer. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name and deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Father, it is for your name's sake that we are here. You have called us. You have spoken to us. You have created in us a new heart, a heart that has been made righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Father, we invite you today to speak to that heart which you have created within us, to give us ears to hear, that we might understand what it is you're saying to us individually today. Father, we don't want this to just be an exercise in uh, academic study of the Word, but of exposure to truth, because it is, it is the truth which sets us free. It is the truth that makes us the people we ought to be, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, I pray your blessing upon each one here today. And as your word is proclaimed, around the world this day, we ask that many will be drawn into your kingdom and others will be refreshed in the way and others, Lord, that may have wandered will be brought back to the truth. As we commit this time to you in Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Let me read the first 11 verses. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. <clears throat> when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And it happened as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, that all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent and the slaughter was very great. For there fell 30,000, fell of Israel, 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is not an amusing chapter, as I'm sure you have noted. This whole chapter deals with the incredible folly of religiosity. That is, of claiming the assistance of God based solely upon general cultural beliefs. I'm a Christian because I live in a Christian society. My parents were Christian. I was baptized 
in the church uh, back way, back when, I can't remember when, but I was baptized, you know, and I was married in the church, and I go there on Sunday, and I, I mean, I go there on Easter and Christmas. Cultural beliefs rather than personal beliefs of going through religious practice out of custom rather than out of commitment. The events in this chapter, I think, also put before us the tragic error of syncretism. That is, of viewing God as one of many gods, of the numerous gods that are around. He's just one. There are lots of ways to heaven, as one of the pastors in Reading of one of the mainline Protestant churches has clearly said. And therefore, of viewing God as one of the many gods who can be manipulated, just as the pagans were manipulating their gods to achieve what they wanted. This chapter begins with the statement, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. What this phrase means is that the word of the Lord came to all Israel through Samuel. But Israel was not listening to the word of the Lord through Samuel. Throughout the Old Testament, we discover over and over again, whenever Israel got into serious trouble, it was always because they ceased to hear the word of the Lord, and they ceased to obey the word of the Lord. It was inevitably true that their trouble was based in disbelief. And every time it happened, God recorded it. Didn't bear this so much. Of course, we could ask, why did Israel do it so much, you know? But God recorded it faithfully every single time. Why? Because you and I are, well, I, maybe I should just speak for me. I am slow to learn and quick to forget. God has made it abundantly clear to Israel that he would meet their every need and he would give them victory in every circumstance and in every crisis if they did what? Heard the word of the Lord and obeyed it. That's all they had to do, hear and obey, hear and obey, and God would give them victory in every crisis. And so God has said to us, let me just read, uh, there's a passage you all know very well, but uh, I think it bears repeating from 1 John, the third chapter, we read these verses. 1 John chapter 3 at verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. God hears our prayer and God answers because of this. I did a study many years ago on prayer, more than one, but one in particular I'm thinking of, in which it's so often that we pray and we base our prayer on one single passage of Scripture, you know, that because we use Jesus' name, God hears our prayer. But I think we have to look at all the passages in Scripture that deal with prayer, such as this one. He hears our prayer, why? Because we keep His commandments and do what's pleasing to Him. Not simply because we use Jesus' name. Not simply because we have, quote, faith. It takes all of it for it to happen. And this is what God is trying to teach Israel as we read about the events of this particular chapter. We're not told in this chapter why war came about. Why do Israel and Philistia meet in battle on this particular day in this particular place? And we are specifically not told anywhere in this passage that Israel went before the Lord and said, oh Lord, we're being attacked by the, by the enemy. How do we deal with them? We, we find no place where it says they, be, they sought the Lord. Not at all did they seek the Lord. We're simply told 
that Israel and Philistia met together in battle at a place between Ebenezer and Aphek. Now, Ebenezer and Aphek are located on the edge of the plain just before you move into the Shephelah of Israel. Aphek, you see it right here. It's on the, plain, on the edge of the plain of the Philistines. Ebenezer is just on the other side of that low red line. They're only about three miles apart, Ebenezer and Aphek. And Israel was camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines were camped at Aphek and they fought the battle between the two locations. So we're not really very far from Shiloh, about 20 miles due east to Shiloh where the tabernacle was and where the Ark of the Covenant was located at that particular time. We're talking about, therefore, if you put it in a modern context, um, you see Joppa here? Well, just north of Joppa, right in here, is modern Tel Aviv. So we're directly about a little less than 10 miles east of Tel Aviv uh, today is where this battle took place. The Philistines had been a threat to Israel for a very long time, at least since the days of Samson. How long that was before these days, we don't know. All we know is that Samuel will be the last judge of Israel, that Eli was the next la to last judge of Israel, that Samson was at the end, largely at the end of those in the book of the Judges itself. So somewhere we have uh, time merging together here. So we don't know exactly the time frame, but the Philistines uh, had been a very great pain. And of course, remember, it was the Philistines who died at the hands of Samson, the hands of the Lord through Samson, at the end of Samson's life. Undoubtedly, this act or this war was the result of an act of aggression on the part of the Philistines. They probably wanted to increase their territory that they possessed and they were interested, of course, in increasing their influence over Israel. The thing of it is that you, you see this plain along here, the plain of Sharon, the plain of the Philistines down here. That's a very narrow area. I mean, when you think about the fact that all of modern Israel is only 8,000 square miles, about twice the size of Shasta County. And the Philistines just possessed a small part of it, just a narrow strip here that was maybe 10, 15 miles wide by, uh, what would we say here, uh, 50 miles long, now less than 1,000 square miles. That's a pretty small territory for an agricultural people. And so they're, they're trying to move out. They're trying to press into the areas further to the east and to the north. As we read in verse 2, the first day of the battle was a disaster for Israel. Israel went out in battle array and met the Philistines in battle, and the passage tells us that they were defeated with a loss of 4,000 men. But what we discover is that loss of 4,000 men was just a harbinger of a far greater calamity that was just around the corner. It's obvious as we look at this passage from at least from verse 3 that the Lord was not quite ready yet to give Israel over to the Philistines. Although they had lost 4,000 men on the battlefield, they were not routed. They didn't just flee pell-mell off the battlefield and go back, as it says later in the chapter, every man to his tent, which means they went home. No, they didn't. What we discover is they returned to their camp. They went back to their battle camp at Ebenezer. And the Philistines apparently retreated back to their camp at Aphek, and they prepared, of course, to yet fight another day. So from this, we understand that Israel 
apparently inflicted enough damage on the Philistines that the Philistines were not prepared to try to pursue the Israelites at that particular moment. Had the Israelites been routed, they, of course, would have been run completely off the whole region and fled home with the Philistines in hot pursuit. That was how they did battle in those days. You push on the enemy until he breaks. When the enemy breaks and runs, you pursue him, and, of course, you kill most of his soldiers in the back. Arrows in the back, spears in the back, swords in the back as they're fleeing. And you just totally rout the enemy and, and you conquer their territory. But the Philistines were not able to do that and were not confident enough at that moment to pursue Israel. So what was God doing? God was giving to Israel another opportunity, another opportunity to turn to him in faith. God creates crises in our lives so that we will turn to him in faith. God does not make our lives as smooth as Teflon because God knows that as soon as life is very smooth, we become totally self-engrossed and we forget the, our Lord, our Maker. He wanted them to repent of the spiritual apostasy that we read about in this, these first chapters that we read about in these first chapters of 1 Samuel. But instead, what we, do we discover in this passage? We discover that they demonstrated complete ignorance of both God's word and of the history of God's deliverance of Israel. How had he delivered Israel in the past? Did they ever go back and look? Did they ever consider what he had done in the past and how he had done it? The pagans that surrounded them had all kinds of sacred symbols which they used to worship their God. They had good luck charms. They had sacrifices that they made. What for? To placate their God to appease their God, and to manipulate their gods, to get the gods to do what they wanted the gods to do. After all, these gods were mostly made in human image anyway. So Israel attempted to do the same thing with Yahweh. They come back into the camp, and, and rightly do the elders say, why has God defeated us? They, they acknowledged that God had defeated them, which, which was true. God had not allowed them to win, but God had allowed them to be defeated before the Philistines. So the, they asked the question, and they immediately answered the question by saying, I know, we know what we should do. Let's go to Shiloh, and let's bring the Ark of the Covenant here to the battlefield. Oh, that's a good idea. Really good idea. Bring it on the battlefield so the next time they fight the Philistines, they will take the Ark of the Covenant with them. And, of course, its, it's, it's uh, power will just shatter the enemy, at least they hope so. They totally failed to realize how God had given them victory in the past. How had God given them victory through Joshua? How had God given them victory through Gideon? How had God given them victory through Jephthah? Had it been done because they marched on the battlefield with the Ark of the Covenant in the front? No. The Ark of the Covenant was not even on the battlefield when these men fought their battles. The only time the Ark was there <clears throat> was when they circled Jericho those many times and the walls of Jericho fell. Why did they do that? Because God prescribed that's what they were to do. Do we find any prescription from God in here? Absolutely none. Why was it when the ark was present at Jericho that the walls fell? Was it because the ark was there? No, because God was there. And the ark was merely a symbol of the place that God had chosen to demonstrate his presence. They viewed the ark, therefore, as a talisman as roughly in the vernacular, a good luck charm, a, a sacred symbol that would automatically, it's sort of like the sign of the cross, you know, you carry the, sign, the cross around and you drive away demons, some people believe. 
they hoped that the emblem of the ark was greater than the emblem of the Philistines' gods. The ark, of course, had successfully led Israel in the wilderness, and even the Philistines take note of that. And, of course, at Jericho, the walls had fallen because God had given the victory, and the ark was present at that time. But the point is that God gave Israel victory over the enemy, not because of the physical presence of the ark, but because of the faith of God's people. Faith gives us the victory. Is that not the song we used to sing? Faith gives us the victory. Thus the military leaders, what did they do? They sent a delegation to trot up the hill to Shiloh and to get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it back to Ebenezer. Now, the trip from, a, uh, from Ebenezer right here to Shiloh, it's about 20 miles roughly, give or take a few. And it's largely uphill because at Aphek, you're actually on the edge of the plain. At Ebenezer, you're, up in the sh you're beginning into the Shephelah, that hilly region that you come through before you actually get into the highlands of uh, Ephraim. And, and so they're kind of going to have to run uphill here to over to Shiloh to get the uh, ark, and then they're going to have to bring the ark back down to Ebenezer, carrying it on the poles, of course, the Levites would have to do. So that would take a little while. So we're looking at at least a full day going to Shiloh and another full day returning from Shiloh with the ark. So obviously the ark cannot be carried into battle until at least three days after the battle in which they have been defeated. So why the Philistines just sat over there and let Israel do its thing, we don't know, which I think is another indication that the Philistines, although they had defeated Israel and killed 4,000, had taken enough bloodying themselves that they weren't terribly confident uh, about the battle they were about to re-engage in. The question is, why did Hophni and Phinehas accompany the ark? These two people who were taking everything they could get for themselves and, and who were literally raping the women uh, who were the temple servants there in Shiloh. Did they come to represent the priesthood? Great representatives they were. Well, certainly we know Eli could not have come because as we learn later in this chapter, Eli was 98 years old. Eli was blind and he was extremely overweight. So obviously he could not make the journey down to Ebenezer. And I don't think he even wanted to go. I think he opposed the idea of the ark coming out of the tabernacle and being carried down, or at least he only reluctantly agreed. And, and that's probably what actually happened because of what we read about him uh, a little bit later. Whatever the excuse for Hophni and Phinehas attending the ark, their presence, I think, was merely tolerated by the rest of Israel because the rest of Israel well knew what kind of men these people were. The, their fame or their infame had preceded them, what kind of people they were and how they dealt with the people who came to worship there. Now, of course, given the attitude of many of Israel here that the Ark of the Covenant is merely a talisman, a good luck charm, a, a center of power that will automatically give them victory, it could be they thought that since Hophni and Phinehas at least represented the priesthood, that maybe it was a good thing that they were there. But why were Hophni and Phinehas there? What was the real reason for their presence? Well, I think the real reason was they were hoping to have a good time and they were hoping to get in on the loot because whenever one army defeats another army, the winning army takes everything the, the defeated army leaves behind. And usually there's a lot of goodies there. 
I think there is a, a, a motivation, though, that we don't see. And that motivation is of God himself. I think God himself motivated Hophni and Phinehas to go because, you see, God was just about to fulfill his prophecy through Samuel on the lives of these two men, and that is he was going to take their lives for the vileness that they had displayed. Well, when the ark arrived in the camp of Israel at Ebenezer, the people were filled with such joy and confidence that they yelled and screamed. It was sort of like a football game, you know, cheering for the touchdown here. The, 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 the ark has arrived. Well, the sound echoed off the hills and down the valley from Ebenezer down to Aphek, and the sudden noise startled the Philistines. What's this? They were defeated over there. What's all this cheering going on in their camp? It's very understandable that they wondered what all this wild excitement was because they didn't feel like it was probably a good thing from their perspective, whatever was causing the cheering over there. Well, they discovered why, and this must come from a scout or a spy who was out there and who saw this procession coming and saw the Ark of the Covenant being brought and, and taken into the Israelite camp and, and the reaction that it produced. And so the spy came and informed the Philistine leaders as to what had happened. From verses 7 and 8, I think we can understand that the Philistines probably knew as much about the significance of the Ark as did Israel because we read in, in those verses that they were afraid. It says, God has come into the camp, meaning the camp of Israel. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. They knew of the ark, and they knew of what had been done by God, Yahweh of Israel, in Egypt, and in the wilderness, and in the conquest of the land, even though this is many, many, many years, even generations after the conquest and all those other things were really uh, ancient history by this time, they still knew about it. That's how much impact it had made on the Canaanites and other related peoples when Israel first came into the land. And so they were at first frightened, as well they should have been. Because never before had they faced a situation in which the enemy's principal emblem of its God was brought into the camp for battle. These were a very superstitious people. Twice we read, they say, woe to us, woe to us. Now, who were the Philistine gods? Well, the Philistines worshipped many gods. The one we mostly know about is Dagon, sometimes referred to as a fish god. Dagon was related to Baal, the Baals of the um, Canaanites. And, and Baal was a direct derivative of Enlil of the Sumerians and uh, Chemosh of the Moabites and uh, the various gods of the Babylonians. They were all interrelated. It's, there's, there's a kind of a lineage of gods that you can follow down through time. And the Philistines were polytheists. They worshipped many gods. And to them, you see, they don't understand monotheism. They can't comprehend that Israel supposedly worshipped one god. Part of the reason they could not comprehend, of course, was that Israel had not really made it very clear about the fact that they worshipped one God. Now, they had never before encountered a monotheism, so to, to them, this, this idea that Yahweh is the one and only supreme God who is not even to be represented by any form, well, they couldn't relate to that because all gods have images. It's the way all the polytheists function. And so when they spoke of the God of Israel, you'll notice they used plural language. 
they refer to the God of the ark as mighty gods. And then they go on to say the gods, plural, the Elohim, plural, which is a plural word, that smote the Egyptians. How poor a witness had Israel been that the Philistines didn't understand that they were a monotheistic people. Israel, rather than demonstrating to the world the truth of their faith, a faith in the one and only living God, instead of that, most Israelites had accommodated themselves to the world around them because they didn't want to appear peculiar. We're going to discover as we go later into 1 Samuel, what was the primary reason that Israel wanted a king? Because they didn't want to be like, unlike the other people. <laughs> this desire for conformity. Let's be like everybody else. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul wrote that the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. And then he further goes on to say, to the Jews, the word of the cross is a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, it is foolishness. And Paul, of course, well knew this because when he stood on the um, Areopagus in Athens and preached his famous sermon to the unknown God, many of the Greeks were told there thought this guy was a, was a total idiot, talking about resurrection and about a God you can't see. And others, of course, you know, God smote their hearts and they began to wonder, but the Greeks, this whole idea of a single invisible God ridiculous. And so it was to the Philistines because nobody had ever made it plain as to what was meant. Nobody really wants to look like a fool. You know, most of us, I don't think, want to look like a fool. And thus speaking for God and more important than that, even living for God is not easy. And speaking for God and living for God tend to bring reproach, persecution, derision, from a world that does not understand. So why do people actually witness through their lives or through their words? Well, the motivation for witness in spite of all this negative reaction is, as Paul says, that God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. There are some who hear and there are some who believe because God opens their hearts so that they can understand and be saved. The word will bounce off of many, but it will penetrate many also. And therefore, we choose to live a witness even though it will bring reproach to us at times and make us look like fools. I mean, you know, think about the society in which we live today in which these people who stand up for what is politically correct today, and these people who talk about this, this situation, that situation, the other situation, with such, such arrogance as if anybody who holds a different position is a total nitwit. And usually the people who are doing that, I hold exactly the opposite position on every one of their positions. Thus, if I were to speak to them, I would be a total nitwit, especially since my position would be based in faith in the living God through Jesus Christ, who is the only way to heaven. That makes me, of course, a total bigot. And that's the way we're viewed. And to Israel, the same was the situation because the God of Israel was the only way. He was the only God. And, and thus Israel would be viewed as narrow-minded, bigoted people because they didn't just associate with all the other people and let their God be absorbed with all the other gods. Worship them all. Do like the Athenians did. Build an altar to every God, then build one for the gods you might have left out. You know, cover all your bases, as we would say today, hedge your bets. 
there certainly were faithful witnesses in Israel. We just read the whole account, the whole story of Naomi's faithful witness to Ruth, a pagan woman who was saved out of Moab through certainly the witness of, of Naomi and, and came to be integrated into Israel and, and to become even a member of the family through whom Messiah would be born. But most often, more often than not, the Israelites were seduced into paganism of the surrounding people. Rather than witnessing to the people around them, they became like the people around them. So no wonder the Philistines didn't understand and could use and, and talk of Yahweh as, as if a plural, he's a plural God because they didn't really understand that Israel worshiped only one God, supreme God. So the Philistines who took part in this scenario which we're studying had no true understanding of the situation they were facing, at least had God been on the side of Israel here that this misconception did not immediately destroy the Philistines is largely due to the fact that Israel was so foolish that God had to deal with them primarily. God had a lesson to teach his people. However, what we do discover as we go on into the following chapters, God will hold the Philistines responsible even though God used them as his whip as his discipline on Israel. And one of the things you, one of the most fascinating things about, that you find in the whole Testament is that God will use the Philistines, God will use the Persians, God will use the Assyrians, God will use the Babylonians, yet he holds all of them responsible for how they are used. That is how they react to, how, to being used. And of course, as we know, um, tragedy generally came on those other nations because they took it to themselves. We have defeated the God of Israel. As Sennacherib would say, I'm going to put Yahweh in a cage and carry him off to Nineveh just as I have all the other gods. Oh, yeah? Not quite. Rather than becoming totally discouraged and giving up the fight, the Philistines encouraged each other to be a man. Continue the conflict, because if we don't continue the conflict, if we melt now and give up, we will be slaves to Israel just as we have enslaved Israel. And they didn't want to be slaves. They were more willing to die than they were to be enslaved. Well, the next day, when the battle was engaged again, Israel went to battle with great confidence. Can, can you just imagine what it must have been like? The Levites with Hophni and Phinehas right there paraded the ark on out and the ark went forward towards the enemy and Israel came in behind and they were shaking their swords and their spears and they were sure that they were going to win the day because God was with them. They knew God was with them because the box was there. They were carrying God onto the battlefield. Just like when you see some of these images of saints being paraded around through towns in various places as if somehow the saint is really there or, or whoever. Unfortunately, they were totally oblivious to the fact that the God who was, and, th and this passage tells us that, the God who was enthroned above the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant was there only when he was worshipped in spirit and in truth. As you remember, Jesus told the woman at the well, God is not in Jerusalem. God is not on the top of Mount Gerizim. God is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. He is not physically isolated to certain holy spots. And God is not isolated in this box. 
He is there in power when he is worshipped in spirit and in truth. And they quickly learned that the ark was a useless talisman. The Philistines fought desperately because they thought they were up against supernatural odds. It reminds me of the crusaders when they were, when they were surrounded at the city of Antioch after they had fought their way across Asia Minor. This is on the first crusade. And they hadn't yet got to Jerusalem. They were surrounded there by this vast Turkish army. And uh, they hadn't achieved their goal. And they were, they were dying of hunger and thirst and disease. Their animals had all died. So that they were actually riding cows when they went into battle. And, and they went out against the, the, the Turks. And they were so, what was the word? They were just driven mad that they fought like demons. Well, they were supposed to be crusaders, you know, fought, fighting for Christ. But they fought with such ferocity that the Turks were frightened of them. They'd never been against such madmen before because the crusaders knew that their only hope was to win or die. And so it was for the Philistines. We either win this battle or it's all over. And so we have to fight extra hard because the God of Israel or the gods of Israel are on their side. We discover that not only was Israel defeated, but he was slaughtered and routed. 30,000 men died on that battlefield. I know you've probably seen, as we have uh, on maybe History Channel or somewhere, the Matthew Brady pictures of the Civil War and showing some of the battles that were shot, like at, uh, pictures that were shot at some of the battles, like at uh, Antietam, where these dead bodies are all over the fields. And as one person said, you could literally walk across the field without ever walking on the ground from body to body. But 30,000 men, this is greater than fell on the great Civil War battlefields. 30,000 men were slain on the battlefield. And then the impossible happened. The Ark of the Covenant was captured by the pagan Philistines. Do we have a God who is weak or do we have a God who's not there? The ark was taken by the pagan Philistines, and the men of Israel were aghast. They were dumbfounded. They were totally dispirited. Talk about being depressed. They fled. They ran pell-mell as if the devil himself were after them. Hophni and Phinehas were slain, but that was no loss. It was just a fulfillment of prophecy. As Israel was supposed to have learned, and as the Philistines were soon to learn, Yahweh was to be treated as holy. And to me, that's a very powerful message that rings down through the centuries. God will be treated as holy, not tritely, not lightly, not as our buddy, but as our mighty God. They carried the ark as if somehow God was, was trapped in this box, but his power would radiate out and kill the Philistines. But not so, because it was not accompanied by faith was not accompanied by obedience. It wasn't accompanied by ears to hear the word of the Lord. Let me read from Psalm 78. 78th Psalm, reading at verse 54. So he brought them to his holy land, to this hill which his right hand had gained. He also drove out the nations before them, and he apportioned them for an inheritance by measurement, and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. Yet they tempted and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned their backs and acted treacherously like their fathers. They turned aside like a treacherous bow, for they provoked him with their high places and aroused his jealousy with their graven images. 
When God heard, he was filled with wrath and greatly abhorred Israel. And notice verse 60. So that he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men. The sacred center where the ark had been housed, God abandoned it. And as we're going to discover, Shiloh will be destroyed. The tabernacle will be gone. And he gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hands of the adversary. He also delivered his people to the sword and was filled with wrath at his inheritance. Fire devoured the young men, and their virgins had no wedding songs. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows could not weep. Next Sunday, as we look at the next passage, we're going to see what the impact was of this day on the battlefield and how God used it to work in the lives of his people. How far will God go to turn his people around? He'll take us to the wall. <laughs>